Welcome to Exploring Creativity. Our goal is to inspire, educate, and provide a community for creative people all over the world. On this podcast, we explore a variety of topics with a multifaceted group of creative people. We explore these topics in hopes of broadening your perspective and giving you the tools you need to do your very best work. Today I'm speaking with Angel M. Angel is a music producer. Together we explored imposter syndrome, living and working with autism, fear, and so much more. It was a great conversation with a great friend, and I'm super excited for you to hear it. Okay. Hello. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm like filling out my notebook. Thank you so much for joining. Your hair looks incredible. Thank you. Great work. Um, So I messaged you about this, but basically the kind of format here is a very loose conversation around some topics related to creativity. Um, And the lives are called Exploring Creativity because I want to explore it with you. I want to hear your take on these things. So there's no like right answer. There's not no agenda. There's nothing that I believe is right or wrong here as much as like, I'm really just trying to download as much information from everyone. Um, that's great. Thanks. I like that you actually called this. Oh, this is the loosest lot because that's my jam. Pretty right. Much. It's like I say it's the loosest live, but I actually have topics. So I don't know how loose that is, but it's like the most sturdy loose live that you get out of. <laughs> Just, yeah, we're in the flow. Exactly. So. so thank you so much for joining again. Thanks for everyone that's here. I'm going to uh, have some coffee and then we'll start. This is a um, really good uh, container for for coffee. Um, uh, um, thermos, I guess you could say. I had one before that uh, I didn't know, didn't fully seal. And I was wearing my backpack and was like, why am I sweating? Like it's cold out. And then I wasn't sweating. It was just coffee everywhere, all over my back, through the bag. Um, and so I was like, well, I probably need something that doesn't do that. Uh, and so I got this and it locks. So I'm very happy, grateful for this thing. There it is. It's awesome. It's a iron flask. Yes. I got it because the trips from LA to Joshua Tree and just even when you go out at all out here, you want to have like a ton of water. True. What's the weather like over there right now? Amazing. Yeah. It's, it's hot during the days and like beautiful during the nights. So it's windy, but at least it's not like snowing. It's snowing from it. Like crazy. Yeah. That's, that was wild when I saw that. I'm like, what? I never lived anywhere with snow. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, oh, what do I do with this? <laughs> <laughs> what is this thing? The sky is very cold. It was beautiful, though. It was like, you know, that Edward Scissorhands theme. It's just not mm-hmm. like twinkling, like, you know, little right. flurry blizzards. And then the next day, it would just melt away. So it's really yeah, cool. that's really, really cool. I love that there's this mountain. And um, what do they call that? It's like the aerial tramway the tramway yeah and like, yeah it's so cool you can go up there and all of a sudden there's snow and you come down it's like 100 degrees fascinating the contrast is uh is notable i have so, experienced a depth valley too it's, you know the wild rose kins are like snowing and then the bad water is like 80 degrees it's great it shows like just sort of uh I'll, I'll get deep with it but the duality of things you know like there can be snow like feet from you <laughs> and <laughs> and desert in the opposite direction 
Um, So anyway, the topics that I want to go through, I picked them specifically for you. So these are things that I thought um, that you'd be able to speak to um, or maybe not, but maybe you would struggle through, but enjoy, you know what I mean? So they're, they're, they're specifically for you. Uh, I'm going to read them. Our conversations are even when we're just Instagram chatting, it's great. Well, awesome. Yeah. (laughs) And from those, that's kind of where I I gathered some of these ideas. And um, uh, I must say you're absolutely, our conversation, our first conversation during quarantine was definitely an inspiration for writing this in that um, I realized like there's so many creative people, so many different ideas. And um, I think a lot of the things you were saying have stuck with me since. And I've thought about it and it was like, wow, if only more people could hear other people talk about creative uh, work. I think it would help them. That's so I'm gonna read. I'm gonna read the topics, and you tell me where you want to start. Okay. Cool. So the first one is personal roadblocks. Another one is fear, play, limits, decision making, collaboration. Uh, oh, I think I wrote this on the wrong page. Feedback and language. Okay. Any of those stand out to you that you'd want to start with? I mean, they're all fascinating, but I like that you started with personal roadblocks, just like ping. Like, oh. I think we're all familiar with those. So <laughs> seems we're kind of real today. <laughs> we can I love it. I'm all about sure, why not? Great. So let's start there. What are your um Riff. I mean, literally just riff. Okay. So like personal roadblocks. Um, imposter syndrome. I think a lot of us are, you know, struggle with that. Um, and uh, I do have a neurodivergency, so that gets in the way sometimes. Uh, managing that and allowing that me to be my neurotype, but also function within an industry that isn't the most accommodating to that mm-hmm. kind of neurotype. That's really an interesting journey for me. Um, and often I have to stop and like evaluate, okay, well, how do I get around this one? You know, uh, mm. and learning new skills all the time. I've lost all of my social skills. It's quarantine. So like, I know how to talk to dogs really well. Well, maybe you should, pre- I, I remember being a kid, there was like a dog Christmas record and they were barking to um, the, the Christmas music. Dog. Yeah. You could do that. You can get a bunch of them in the studio. If you're good at talking to them, I think you might have something there. Finally, my million dollar idea. <laughs> I don't know if it'll be a million, but maybe a million streams. There you go. That'll be a dollar. Oh, it's like a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. You said three really, uh, really interesting roadblocks here. So there's imposter syndrome. You said the term neurodiversity. Uh, di- neurodivergency. Div- div- I'm not ASD. I, ASD. I'm on the autism spectrum. Uh-huh. Neurodivergency. I've never heard that term before like that. And then um, this idea of accommodation um, and well, the, you know, the space you're in not being accommodating. Personality is like a big thing in, in our business. And I don't think I'm lacking in that, but I definitely think that the way that I work can be very uh, disorienting to people who have, you know, particularly structured. We do have standards and practices in production and engineering, of course, and I'm able to adhere to to those 
you know, on, on when I'm delivering and stuff, but my actual creative process can be really wild. And um, the combination of being just a little off and being a female can be very, mm. you know, it's, and then I battle the, the kind of microaggressive stuff that when you have a very sensitive personality, and also be like where stuff starts kicking in and you start shutting down and I'll literally forget things that I know. Right. Oh yeah. yeah. That's the whole, like someone looking over your shoulder while you're working and like all of a sudden, or you can't tie your shoes or, you know, like in that, yeah, that's, um, definitely familiar. Um, this idea of divergence and convergence is something we've been talking about. Um, uh, not you and I, but, uh, spider and I on the podcast, we've been talking about it. Um, just been exploring that idea. So hearing the word divergence applied to the brain, um, can you dig into that a little bit more and like uh, shed some light on what that means um, clinically, I guess, or how it applies to you? Uh, well, uh, I think that, you know, we have criteria for what we would call typicality. Uh, we have universal things, you know, but I think that brains are evolving, learning how to do things differently. So um, I feel with autism, a lot of people look at it as a disease to be cured when it's really just a different way of brain being, mm. <laughs> you know, yes. uh, there are a lot of clinical ways that you, I could explain it, but I just don't think that that's relatable. Mm. So I think mm -hmm. we, it, because it's called a spectrum, right? We should understand that, that life is a spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so brains, of course, would be a spectrum. So to kind of isolate autistic brains, um, as some sort of like gross abnormality when it's actually really when you see where the spectrum blends and there's a lot of people in that kind of in-between world um, and that's where a lot of innovation occurs and a lot of deep focus occurs uh, you know uh, not normative thinking and it's really important we're able to um not try to shove people into boxes so that we can understand them we need to bend our understanding of the world Mm. try to bend the things that come to us right yes how how has that shaped your creative process like how is one knowing that you're on this spectrum i don't know where you feel like you fall in terms of that but just knowing that there are these spectrums um of the brain and then working with all these different people um who may or may not fall on a similar spectrum or, or obviously they're falling on some spectrum of something um how has it, how has it helped your creative process? Uh, it's made me have to really dig into ways that I don't think naturally. Mm. Um, and so of course you're building new neural networks all the time. And so I'm able to now look at things from a much more, uh, you know, 360 degree view where when you're coming with kind of a more autistic brain, it tends to be a very singular or it, it can even come off as self-centered just because mm. it's it's really hard to go outward unless you learn, you know, for all of us, I think, I think if, if every single person was just taught like, oh, you're the center of your thing, or you feel weird and different from the whole rest of the world, so you're not a part of it kind of thing, it really does become a world or like a part of it. Mm. So do you feel like in that yeah. room early on or even now, it was struggling with sort of, how do you relate outwards? How do you relate to the other selves in the room? Right. 
Well, unfortunate in that I was socialized really well. Um, I wasn't diagnosed until way late in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of had to perform in the world and survive. Mm-hmm. And so you learn a technique called masking, which is you learn how to kind of settle your energy, listen, like look really hard for cues, um, you know, pull back your impulse uh, response. You, you get really impulsive sometimes or really excited. I have to like learn how to tamp that down. Um, yeah, because my energy when I'm like, active uh, in that brain can be really intense mm. you know? so i mean this all sounds great this all sounds like listening skills that i think people don't necessarily have most of the time so it's this sounds don't like way or the other you like learn or you just go further into yourself because yeah. there's just no one meeting you anywhere and that you can't forge that connection and so i think that's when the divergency mm. goes into the war you know because there are ways to communicate with even like the most profoundly um, you know, divergent brain. You right. have to engineer that route in the headspace, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. How do you? So how? So um, divergence and convergence came up because uh, Spider and I were working together. I noticed he's very divergent. I'm more convergent um, on that spectrum, right? I can do either. He can do either, but on the spectrum, right? So. We were trying to resolve this. How do how do we work with each other? Um, and finding each other's strengths and where we were on those spectrums to help us kind of move forward was really useful. Um, you were talking about meeting people um, as uh, meeting people with very divergent minds. How do you meet people? Are there any like kind of tips you found? Or I think it's good to just be really open minded and creative. Uh, the more you're able to when you don't subscribe in absolutes to like the systems that we've established for communicating mm-hmm. with each other, it helps you just kind of find different ways of, of making that connection that maybe aren't as literal or, um, you know, require a, a bit of going off the, the paths that you used to mm-hmm. with people in conversation. Definitely. And I could see as a role of a producer, where that would be very useful. Um, yeah. I'm sure. Um, okay. Wow. There's a lot here. Uh, you know, I, I have to say, I love that we're talking about this because I'm just kind of starting to be more out about being on the spectrum. Um, and it's autism awareness month right now. And a lot of misconceptions about autistic people. Um, and it's a great time to educate yourself this month. Um, don't go to organizations like Autism Speaks and stuff like that, because, again, that's there is a mindfulness out there or there's a way of thinking out there that thinks, again, that autism is some horrible thing that t- is to be prevented. Um, and that's a really ableist way of thinking. So uh, try to stay away from ableism. Um, most of us don't mind it being called a disability, but again, disability doesn't necessarily make you dysfunctional. Yes, uh, I can absolutely relate. Uh, there's also a, a comment in the thread that says, do you think it helps to be diagnosed if we have doubts about it? <laughs> can, um, but I think it depends on how much you need that label. I, I think for me, having the term made me go, now it makes sense. And I'm not just like horribly awkward and different than everyone else. And I actually have a way of understanding that my brain is this processing machine. Mm-hmm. I don't have certain software or whatever, right? 
And then I have other software that's, you know, maybe not as compatible with everybody else's OS, but it's right. Um, you mentioned, you mentioned language, um, and that's definitely one of the topics I wanted to get into because I think it relates so much, like having a label can both really help or really hurt depending on, uh, how you use it, um, and how the people around you use it. So it's sort of this double-edged thing where it's like, if you're, uh, insecure about having the label and the world might not be, that's one way. Or if the world is, uh, confused about this label and you're insecure about it, that's where it can go wrong. So I, to your point, I think it's like, it depends on if you need it and how you might use that label once you have it. You know, the thing about labels is they should only ever be references. They should only mm-hmm. be touchstones and points to kind of create that web and that galaxy that we are, those anchors in that galaxy. Um, yeah. It's good to have them so that you can be, you can A, relate or B, um, frame something in a way that you might not understand just kind of intuitively. But when you have this way of identifying, you'd be like, oh, you know, if you, if you walk up to someone and you start talking to them and they, they don't even like look up, you're like, what's going on? But then if you find out that they're hard of hearing or they're deaf, mm. it, it definitely changes the context of how you would interact. With them. Right. And you could add, yeah. and then at that moment is that fork in the road of like, what else are you encoding in the meaning of someone being deaf versus uh, is it helping move the conversation or yeah. Um, it's great that you're, you're kind of coming out about this and speaking about it more. Um, it wasn't anything I wanted to bring up unless you wanted to. So I really appreciate it. Um, this is really, I mean, part of these labs are just introducing people I think are excellent and creative and interesting to the people I know. Um, and you're definitely one of those people. So, um, I appreciate you opening up in, in that way. Uh, I love it. It's, it's nerve wracking for me. It's, I'm a little bit shaky. It's, it's kind of nerve wracking to talk about, but I'm really trying to be like radically transparent. Yeah, no, I think that's the best way. Um, and I will continue to push and dive into it as much as you're comfortable. Um, but if you're not, feel free to say it. Um, I will say, uh, for me, you know, I was diagnosed with Crohn's disease when I was in high school. So I was in, um, I guess it was 11th grade going into 12th grade. Now, prior to that, my, my dad has Crohn's disease, uh, and my sister was diagnosed like a year before I was. So in my head, I'm like, I'm fucked. Like if I get this, I'm fucked because the narrative to me was that this thing, you'll be in the hospital all the time. You'll be sick all the time. You don't have any energy. You'll only be able to work for a certain amount of years. It had all of this meaning encoded in the diagnosis. So when that label came, I wasn't even looking for options. I was just like, well, I'm fucked. Okay. Like, you know, that's what it is. And um, it, it took years to actually realize like, one, this is just a label. And there's reasons that... um I guess we could get into, there's reasons that things are given labels in the scientific community. Um, because now it gives a smaller cohort of people that they can interact with and maybe treat. And if you are the first to label it, you get tons of awards and more money and there's the incentives there as well. So it's like, there's a lot to this label um, of, a, of a diagnosis that you're getting, a lot more than just like the fate of your life. Uh, and it took me a while to realize that. Um, right. And I think uh, from our conversations, your diagnosis, the way you've handled it, uh, handled it, 
um, on a positive way is like where I've gone to kind of later, like sort of halfway through the diagnosis of like, oh, if I just eat differently, I actually won't have like the majority of these problems. And, um, you know, it's a, a radically strict diet, but if I do it, I'm fine. And even well, if- I'm glad I know about this now. I'm not going to send you the five pounds of gummy bears this year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, I'm like, all right. But here's the thing. It's like, I know that I could eat uh, a quarter pound of them. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be, I'll feel like some inflammation the next day, but it's not like, like it used to be in my head having, I didn't even know. I would just eat anything. And I, to me, it was random when I would get sick. Uh, and the whole reason being is the way it kind of works, not to get so in depth, because it's simply not useful for most people, but- um, It's fascinating. I would eat something and the chain of events that led to inflammation in the gut that would lead to a hospitalization could be like two weeks. So like, yeah, you couldn't really, it wasn't like I ate a gummy bear and then I like my throat closed up. You know what I mean? Right. It was, I ate like a pound of gummy bears and three weeks later, um, I was hospitalized for dehydration and having inflammation in the gut. So, but it's like, wait, why? Like, that's so random. Like this, there's no correlation here. Like, even though I ate McDonald's and smoked weed all week and like just ate shit, why am I sick? Like, you know, other than like the, oh, it's bad for you. Other than that, I was like, I don't get it. Like, right. this is random and because no one in my family really knew. It was like, that's just what it is. And so it took a long We're time. To, you, you know, right. if you don't know any different. How would you know any different? Exactly. So anyway, all of this to say the label and how you handle the label is, is really key. Um, if you're using it as a tool to then investigate further, great. If you're using it as like, whatever the worst version of this is, is <laughs> the label I have, um, right. you'll start to believe it just like other things in life. So yeah, uh, but seeing how you've overcome, I guess, or lack of a better word, or just, um, I'm integrating it. Yeah, integrated and not succumbed to, I guess I'll say, um, a, a label is really um, admirable. So, and thank you for sharing it. Um, imposter syndrome. <laughs> what do you think? Look. Well, I think that actually, I think it dovetails nicely with the neurodivergency. You know, um, I've always known that I'm an intelligent person and I know that I get big concepts and especially within my field, um, mm -hmm. I've always been very intuitive and naturally inclined towards that stuff, but also because my brain is so weird in the way that it organizes information and the way that I have to kind of engineer things to work within the machine for myself and get it all running smoothly it, um, for a long time because I didn't know anything about autism. Um, other than what I had seen, which is like really profoundly developed disabled people and stuff mm. like that, right? Um, so I just didn't know how to like show up like that to people because people, especially when you're young and the, the community that I grew up in, there's just a lot of like bad energy and bullying and you know, and when you grow up with people that don't understand you, you just kind of feel like I'm just some deficient somehow. And uh, people get really frustrated with you because they don't understand how your brain works and you don't understand why delegate you. You know what I mean? It just is. Right. So you get really nervous about making any sort of confident mm. moves. Mm. Uh, but 
now I'm a bit more confident because I have been doing this for my lifetime now, but I still have so much. And it's, it's a combination. I hate to shove the like woman thing down people's throats, but it's such a crucial part of my journey that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that had a lot to do with it too. Because, you know, uh, most women that I talk to in engineering, you know, feel like they have to be doubly smart, feel like mm-hmm. they have to be work doubly hard to be barely considered, right? And and you're trying to juggle all these balls to keep up there um, to, to be in the room. And uh, so I think that we... When you when the space is exclusive and you don't feel like you belong, when you come into that space, it's hard not to feel kind of like an imposter. You know? mm-hmm. Like you're, you, you know, you know deep down in your heart you don't belong there, but that's really just conditioning from, you know, bias and things that you've seen. Right. So just to recap some of the things you were just saying. So you're saying imposter syndrome for you is sort of this chain of events of your brain's organizing information in a way that you at the time didn't even understand. People around you didn't understand it. Yeah. You're trying to show up in, in creative environments, I assume is what you meant. Yeah. Show up, like, well, creative and technical. On. I mean, I, I tried to get into engineering for a long time, but because I don't, I dropped out of school really young. I have a little bit of a learning disability. Um, and, but I'm very enthusiastic and I show up. And I also, if I don't know, I don't, you know, I don't know. But I had to learn how to pretend to them. <laughs> just in order to um, not be further put down or condescended to, or, you know what I mean? And then I would have to investigate and scramble to catch up when I would remove myself from that situation. You, know? you were saying like in technical environments and creative environments, you had to pretend to know because the people in the room weren't really accepting of people who didn't know. Is that sort of what you're... Uh, it, honestly, I uh, grew up in an environment in which women in STEM still were, you know, I have this very like mm-hmm. low working class, um, women mm-hmm. in STEM was still new. Uh, and it was very typically a place where, you know, we still kind of as a, as a collective society still believed in that, like male brain is technical, female mm-hmm. brain is, you know what I mean? And so that mm-hmm. was very normative. And that's something that I took really personally. Um, because again, I'm trying to understand these concepts that don't make sense to me. Um, and so I was like, wow, this seems to be like a big deal. So whenever as, as a girl, I felt like I was trying to go into space that I saw typically reserved for boys, um, mm. you know, and I'm very much a girl. I'm not my area, mm. like female, femme, that's my, mm. that's my, you know, designation. But I also do have that kind of brain. And throughout my life, you see the people that I gravitated towards, it was always the very technically inclined, um, you know, engineer types, people who fix stuff, you know, things that I'm not as good at, but I am fascinated by, and I would love to be better at. And that's kind of, that helped grow me because the creative thing is like, I can't not do that. (laughs) But the the technical thing is something that, you know, I've had to integrate. And for a while I was really resistant to it because the, my first forays into trying to understand that people were really cruel. I dealt with very abusive people that Mm. made me feel like really dumb for not coming in knowing when how could I have because I didn't have an education it wasn't you know there it wasn't like there were engineering schools everywhere and you know little production studios this was like the early 90s mm, right there wasn't like women in YouTube. yeah no no YouTube I mean yeah. we barely had BBSs and I exploited those mm-hmm. to the X degree trying to get information 
Right. Yeah, but we you want to explain what that is people on the, on the thread? Do you want to explain what that is? For two the ES? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so bulletin boards. Back in the day, if you visited Reddit, Reddit is, is pretty much built on the old school internet structure. So social media basically used to be like these online bulletin boards that were just like literally messages and threads, messages, mm. threads. And, and before that, it was like Usenet, like email groups and stuff like that. But then it was centralized to the internet and you could meet people in your city. <laughs> mm. And in Austin, we had, well, now that I look back on it, it was kind of a little creepy, but nothing really bad ever happened. Right. But we had, we had a BBS group in Austin where we had members who were like, in their 60s and we had members or you know i was like what 15 16 something like that yeah. my, my best friend was some tv team and wow. we all go hang out you right. know, and meet in real life and stuff like that so it was just a place where people would come and exchange it wasn't chat it wasn't as much real time yeah um, but you could you know it's kind of the same format you just were observing conversation and mm-hmm. kind of participating or not and gleaming gleaming stuff from it or not you know mm-hmm. It was just a very pure, like, way of right. communicating. And it was all based on people who were really just curious. And, you know, I, I miss that internet a little bit. <laughs> I, I definitely do as well. And that's why, I like, these lives and sort of how I like to handle social media is, like, trying to make as much of that. Because we have so many more tools than we ever did. But, like... Oh, and it, we misuse them so greatly. Yeah, yeah, right. It's, like, went from, like, the internet being such a pure way of, like, organizing information for lawyers, the original sort of uh, thesis around the internet to like just being able to code documents so that you're like, oh, I can like reference this for later. Like, this is amazing stuff. Great. Yeah. Uh, to now it's just like, I can post a meme <laughs> like, <laughs> about something that just happened or like some brand even where, you know, like a meme about a brand that doesn't look like an ad. Like that's it's like that's where we've come. But I think there's so much value to, you know, a tool like this. Like I can someone just joined and I can wave at them. You know, like if you participate in it thoughtfully, I think it's it's so useful. Um, and it seems like you were back then. Um, but you're saying so, um, people being abusive about knowledge ultimately. Uh, people were kind of, um, being sort of putting you down because they were more knowledgeable or you were less knowledgeable. Um, do you feel like that still happens today? Do you see that happening? Uh, how do you deal with that now? I think we're, we've learned because of the internet, speaking of, we've learned to be a lot more open source. We mm-hmm. understand that we cannot, we, we can try, but ultimately we can't be gatekeepers of information. Mm-hmm. And you look at the old school, I mean, a lot of that stuff was very, is a very good kept community. It's a highly competitive community. Of, and it's one where, you know, there's a lot of struggle to stay on the forefront mm-hmm. and head of the curve. And so I think that kind of, when you combine that with the dominating um, field, when recording was like coming really into its realization, for the most part was rock. Mm-hmm. And rock music is is very much a, a not as female friendly, um, mm-hmm. very, uh, there's a lot of ego. There's a lot of um, stuff like that. And it was encouraged. It's a mm-hmm. really toxic culture that was very right. encouraged. And you had to be initiated into that. It's very important that, mm-hmm. you know, you, you played to all of the rules of, of that. So I think that there, 
were a couple of generations that that just culture was very solidly established uh, right. within, you know, uh, within P&E. So you just kind of get, I mean, I'm kind of losing my point. I'm sorry, but uh, like thinking about it is, is it, it's so complex because there's so many different elements to why it's challenging. Yeah. You know? uh, kind of yeah. following up, going up the so, chain of, of sort of the imposter syndrome thread right. to how you organize information and showing up in the room. We kind of got here, which is the room you were showing up in was one that wasn't encouraging you to grow. I guess it had a lot to do with being a young woman because I came yeah. in, I came into the the studio scene, or at least trying to get into the studio scene as the high school dropout, mm-hmm. a girl from LA in Texas, mm-hmm. um, who everybody I hung out with a bunch of bands because we related to each other, but that was basically in everyone else's eyes. I was just like a teenage groupie, and I was right. treated like that for the most part. It had a lot to do with being, you know, a young woman. Yeah. Um, that's why I speak to the culture of like rock and how much, because that's what I grew up in was hard rock and punk and stuff right. like that. So, and it was a very exclusive and very hard space. And you have to, you know, you have to, you know, be able to hang with the boys and all of that. And, right. and also deal with field, you know, all the stuff that comes at you as a young woman. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of why I touch on, on yeah. that part. Okay. Um, and so that's what you mean by them not understanding you, um, not being com- uh, What about not being confident about the moves you were making? Well, I'm self-taught for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a lot more common now. Uh, but back in the day, like if you were homeschooled or if you were a little bit more of an autodidact, you were definitely looked at as weird. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think I always come in like, there's always holes in your knowledge when you're teaching yourself and it, it's a long process and all those holes eventually fill in, but it's not right. quite as like step by step by step by step when you have structured education. There's mm-hmm. a lot of just like, ooh, <laughs> you know, so I am always nervous um, about hearing like I don't know what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm better yeah. about like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me? You know what I mean? But, but again, because I had so much to prove and when I'm, sh- when I was a young woman showing up in these rooms and trying to prove myself, I really had to be so on it because literally people will like make fun of you. I got yelled out of the session once, like screamed out of the session because I pointed out something in a vocal that they said was a bad edit. And I'm like, no, it's a garble in her throat. Mm-hmm. I'm a voice specialist. Like that's mm-hmm. what I do. And and this was before I had, had made that journey into becoming mm-hmm. a vocal specialist. But I heard it. I was like, no, I think she's had a little weird global movement. And mm-hmm. it just went. And I just suggested that because this guy was, I sat there and watched this guy berate the lead engineer for an hour mm-hmm. about this bad edit, which wasn't a bad edit. And like, I, I finally was like, after I watched this guy just deflate in the chair, like there's nothing more he could say to defend himself, you know, and he didn't, he, he thought it was a bad edit because he didn't know, you know, mm-hmm. but I know, I know the sounds of, of a throat, like, but stuff. Right. And so, uh, I, I suggested, I was like, can I suggest something? He was like, excuse me. I, I think what happened is she just had a little, like a little glottal movement and that's what you're mm-hmm. hearing. And he just turned on me and screams me out of the room. Like, what the fuck do you know? And it's like, it's 40s. 
Wow. And I'm 17, you know? So, and he, he barged in on my session, mind you, to yell at the engineer. So I had to sit there as the artist at the time, right? Okay. Um, and, and, and have my session held hostage by the screaming guy. And then I tried, I, so like that had a big, like, oh, it's after all the experiences that I'd had up to that, I was like, oh my God, yikes. And I pivoted back to just being an artist and not just like home reporting and staying mm. out of that for a long time. And so you, I would assume this, this perpetuated the imposter syndrome of just like, I don't know what I'm doing. There's people that clearly know, or maybe they don't, but they're more intense about it. Um, mm -hmm. So I, did you feel that you were an imposter because you um, weren't as aggressive? I think it was just a really nice suit of <laughs> me being insecure as person just because I feel so displaced in the world, right? Me. And we all have that to a degree. Um, me not having a formal education in a field that's highly technical. Uh -huh. um, me being... Um, very divergent culturally from your established culture in peace. Um, and also just being a person that like, I genuinely want to be the best I can be at what I do. And I know that I'll always fall short of my personal standard. So oh. I already go in always like feeling a little bit deficient, deficient just because I know I have things to learn still. And that can be you know, everything has its kind of paradox to it. So you have excitement and you have nervousness and you have curiosity and you have like fear. Yeah. You know? um, and so it, sometimes it can just like things get out of phase and I, then I end up feeling really fearful, you know, mm. when the imposter syndrome kicks in and I'm, you know, like, should I be doing this? What am I trying to do this? It feels like people, I think people are talking behind my back or like secretly making fun of me or, you know, right. if, I, if I don't use the, you know, established term for something and I use language that's a little bit more creative or wooey, mm -hmm. you know, something right. like that. When, that's just my personality type. Yeah. So, so that's interesting to connect. So all of that, that soup of insecurity, <laughs> when that arises, fear takes over is where the imposter syndrome comes out. It's like, maybe I shouldn't be doing this. And it's sort of this response you're having to fear. Um, to these, the fear. Fight or flight. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I freeze, that. really. I, you know, I don't even fly. I freeze. Right. I just like, I forget everything I know. Right. I forget who I am. I forget mm -hmm. all of the amazing things that I've done and been party to. And mm -hmm. all of the great stories of my life that have made me this person. Just, mm -hmm. like, <laughs> scared me. <laughs> Scared meat? Did you say meat? M e a t. Yes, heavy scared me. Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Oh man, that's going in the book. <laughs> oh man, it's really what we are, or can be. Um. Yeah. So it it seems like, I mean, obviously this isn't happening to you all the time. So huh. do you? And it seems like you're you're able to recognize it. At least uh, you're able to describe it. Are you able to recognize it now more so in the moment, or kind of as it's creeping up? There have been a couple of times I've actually nipped it before it even started, uh, which is great because that means my tools are sharper. But right. Most of the time it takes me a minute. Like, thankfully, because of what I spoke of earlier about masking, mm -hmm. I'm really able to kind of autopilot while I'm struggling and mm -hmm. keep that face outward 
you know, intact so that people don't see what's going on with me as much mm-hmm. um, internally. While internally, I'm like, <laughs> yeah, which is also not good. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's very, it's yeah, very, it's very disorienting and exhausting sometimes. It can be really exhausting. I like, you know. Well, I thought that this uh, stuff was mental illness and I do have some, I have PTSD and chronic depression, but that's actually mm-hmm. part of going 30 plus years without being diagnosed. Right. right. Because right. all the trying to cope, like you're this person are never going to be able to live in society unless you pretend mm-hmm. to be this thing. And anyone who's, that's not, you know, just uh, exclusive to autistic people. All of us, you know, especially those of us who are a little different in some way or another and experience being bullied or otherwise kind of coerced by other people to not be who we authentically are. Mm-hmm. We, um, you know, we start masking those parts of us. And then when you disconnect from those parts of yourselves and you have to wear this mask all the time, you start really getting confused about who you actually are, mm-hmm. what you believe and where your values are. And mm-hmm. it's very easy to slip into kind of an academia state where you just don't care about anything. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and and you care on a like engagement level, but that like to your heart, soul, you know, passionate thing, you learn to kind of like like taper that off a little bit if mm. you're not careful, you know, and then you end up like barren creatively mm. and scared. That it scared me. It scared me. It's. Uh, <laughs> I want a t-shirt that says. Here. Yeah, that, that's good. I'm going to take a note. I'll draw a little t-shirt. I don't forget. Scared. <laughs> me. Um, it reminds me of a project I did in design school. It said something about like, follow the heart or something, but it was just like this gross photo of a heart. Blood everywhere. It's amazing. <laughs> I have it somewhere. I, oh, I could find that. Um, but this is very relatable. This sort of... Um, through line from maladaptive behavior to like depression. It's something I've recognized over time. It's like you're creating these behaviors to sort of mask um, parts of yourself. Ultimately that over time is like causing problems, but it's like benefiting you or protecting you in a way. And then doubt and a frustration with that creeps in. Who am I? What is the self? Who am I really if I'm masking half of myself? And then you just kind of shut down. And that's where like the depressive state comes in. And so like, and, like you lose executive function. You know what I mean? Yeah. There are times that I can't even organize and respond to an email. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's yeah. really bad for me. And then yeah. the executive dysfunction component of it is something that I have mm-hmm. to explain to my colleagues that I have to explain to the people I work with and that is terrifying because you're being vulnerable and you're also opening yourself up to your clients thinking that perhaps you're not capable of doing the job you're being enlisted for. Right. You know, it's really, really difficult, but I'm being more transparent about it and I'm not being like, I'm not like front-loading an apology. Right. You know, I'll okay. be like, hey, this is kind of my communication style. So you know, I have this. So if you yeah. ever feel there's a weird energy, like talk to me about it because mm. um. I, I have noticed that sometimes the way that I come off when my brain is activated in this way, it, it can be a little bit either intense or, or confusing to people because they don't know where I'm coming from. So I just try to be super, like I said, just radically transparent about who I know I am now. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and that I 
genuinely want to work together to have the strongest communication and mm. the most effective inner and productive communication that we can. I definitely see that based on a lot of the things you're saying. There's a book I'm reading right now called People Skills. It's one of the three books I'm reading right now. It's incredible. It's about, um, and I've mentioned it on the last like three lives. Yeah. People that have joined have probably heard about this, but um, it's by a guy named Robert Bolton. And let me just grab it real quick because it's right here. Um, how to assert yourself, how to listen to others and how to resolve conflicts. So. Oh, right. You sent me that. All the things. Sure. Okay. And get that book. Yeah, I mean, I think you're touching on a lot of this. I mean, he starts the book talking about um, listening. It's not actually in the order that it says here. So like the first third is about listening and then assertion and then resolving conflict. And I love that order because to resolve any conflict that's going to be happening, you need to be able to assert what you believe. Um, but the only way to assert is to understand context and the person you're asserting to, which starts with listening and all those skills. So like, that's another sort of maladaptive thing. I think we've never been trained on in school. They're not teaching you how to assert or resolve conflict or listen other than like, well, Hey, why would you I teach know. someone how to be brilliant when you can right. teach them how to be effective? Yeah. How to, how to do well on a test or something, how, but yeah, uh, how, to, how to be a cog in the machine. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you know, the way of uh, handling uh, conflict is, you know, the two of you need to separate. You go over here, you go over there. So it's it's actually removing the ability to assert, removing the ability to listen or, or preventing the development of those abilities. So, yeah, uh, you know, I think some of these behaviors of, of masking ourselves, we're not listening to ourselves. And then how, what are we teaching ourselves as a result? We're not listening to others. Uh, and now how can you assert? If you're afraid to be fully you and you don't know them fully, it is scary. You're not going to want to give feedback to someone you don't know. Uh, right. Because if they're as much of a loose cannon as you think you are, then they might explode. Like, who knows? You know, so right. I, I totally get this. Um, this book has helped a lot to be like, especially with these lives, how can I listen take stock of what people are saying? Um, one technique is tons of techniques in there. But this idea of... Um, of uh, summarizing uh, and just being able to summarize what someone has said to you is so useful as a tool. Um, oh, just watching you recap our little, like, you know, our little rocks through each thing that we're talking about. Like, I so appreciate that because that's how it's really organized. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because I'm super stream of consciousness to the point where my husband, God bless him, what's up with it is his brain is like so beautifully structured and everything's organized, like just awesomely. He's such an effective oh. and like understands points of argument, argumentation and all of that stuff. And he just like has that brain and I'll be talking about something and go full galaxy brain. And to me, these are connected, but he's looking at like, why are you, are you talking about? Right. Yeah, so I appreciate those little summaries. <laughs> yeah, I, I think summaries give people the ability to uh, prove or disprove or clarify or you know, totally disregard what was said. It's like, oh, I heard you say that. You're like, I didn't say that at all. Like, or at least I may have said that, but what I really meant was, you know. Right. Uh, I said anyway, Really great book. I strongly recommend it. It's been um, okay. incredibly useful. I'm only a third of the way there because I 
read this book on sales and then a book on consulting. So I've been in like business mode and it's not a whole thing, but, um, this book is way more valuable <laughs> in some ways. Um, not financially valuable, but it's way more valuable as, as the person behind all of the things. And, um, I think it's a skill, especially so as a designer of presenting language into the world and visuals that are encoded with meaning, right? You're presenting music into the world. And so people are listening or seeing the things we're making. They're consuming it somehow, right? We can just summarize listening, right? And so the better you get at those skills for yourself, it can only be better for the the end uh, user, the consumer, whoever, you know, the listener. So yeah. really deep. And I teach everybody that I have, I do a lot of mentorships and stuff like that and, and just helping people that are coming up in my field, especially young women. And one thing that I say is like for a field where our ears are the primary tool, we really need to learn to listen more, mm -hmm. like deeper. Yes. And, and not just like in the frequencies, but like into everything, into the message of a song, into the mm -hmm. heart of an artist, into the intention of a work. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I, I really take issue with people saying that the engineering part of it is just like this purely technical thing. It's really, really not. You are literally sculpting sound to give this emotional response and the real great engineers know how to do that. Yeah. They know how to listen and interact with it. Not enough, you know, I'm listening to see what works and what doesn't. And it's, you know, it's, I was listening to uh, Anthony Fantano, who's like a music uh, review gnome on YouTube. He's great. He's so funny, but he yeah. does this series of like, here's all these records that like, I'm not going to spend a whole episode reviewing, but like they just came out. I listened to him and I just put it on. I don't know any of the albums he's talking about, any of the artists, but the way he's speaking about it, like, and right. you know, I didn't see any like real intention in these songs or kind of generic or whatever the critique is. When you really see past, you know, the the showmanship of, you know, any reviewer, they are intently listening. And I think it's interesting because a lot of people in their field aren't doing that, but the reviewers are more than the practitioners. I would say, yeah, yeah, a, a lot of, because artists aren't listening, as much to that mm -hmm. inner voice producers aren't listening as much to the artists engineers are just trying to get through it because the loads that we keep on them these days are absolutely ridiculous um you know there's there's a lot of stuff where there isn't even the space for that kind of deep mm -hmm. listening budgets are ridiculous these days it's not mm -hmm. like you could spend the time that it takes to establish that deep listening connection you know it's just a lot of things where you know, if we if we made that a little bit more of a priority, I think that we would just take things so much further. But it's like content quickly now yep. market, you know, like mm -hmm. it just it, it, there's so many things to be concerned about now that 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 little tiny thing that seems like, oh, that's the one thing we can cut out because we don't need to stop and like, you know, meditate on something. That's a right. luxury. No, that's so central. Dude, yeah, process, you know. that's the whole thing. I mean, that's the, I know as a designer, you get that meditation element. Right. Know? I mean, it's it's just it's all. But at the same time, I was talking earlier about how I was showing a picture. So when I did the story the other day where it was like um, promoting the live series with like everyone, I had everyone's photo. Like all I did was go to their Instagram, 
pinch the zoom, take a screenshot, do it, right? And I was talking about how like, there's kind of two modes. There's this mode of like, you just do things quickly because of what it is, right? This story doesn't need to be incredibly well thought out. And if it is, it will stop people in their tracks. And there's certain modes that like, you should stop and think and listen and stop and, you know, really analyze the effect it might be having. Right. And, up, and the better you get, you can do that in real time. You know, you right. analyze the trade-offs, but right. early on, especially, and just, I mean, to continue it is the what you're really doing is listening to the culture, what is happening around you uh, and assessing like, where is that open area that um, people aren't doing something in or what is, where's the void? Uh, are people just not ha making songs with intent or designed with intent? Maybe that's the void. And that's something you could fill uniquely and make it, you know, that's unfortunate. Like the most innovative thing is to have intents nowadays, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. it is anyway. I think, you know, but you do see it as you see it expressed. I mean, there are for, for as much as people love to decry a lot of the creatives right now, there are some very innovative young people making yeah. just these amazing unfettered moves. Like they're so free of our old guard and structure. And yeah. it's such a wild, free place for them. And I'm so, I love that. Mm. I, I don't ever want to have that like boomery mentality about young people because- mm -hmm. We, that's how we move forward. Yeah. You should always have your eye on what young people are doing because there is a lack of, of being chained to a certain structure that you unfortunately just kind of lose because your brain kind of hardwires tighter and tighter and more firmly yeah. as you get older and, and, you know, and then we die and whatever. <laughs> but like, you know, there's there, the way the energy moves through us in that phase when we just are like, we have no little caps or anything like cutting that energy off and it just goes line wide through us you yeah. know there's there's so much to be seen from when you're older and you have more perspective to mm -hmm. look into that and like that'll it's it's almost like this re-blossoming cycle mm -hmm. you can activate something in you that you didn't have before and you can continue to forge those new neural pathways and different ways of thinking and new ways of innovating and creating right i think about um I've been thinking about Brockhampton who just released a new record and um, the comparison with Wu-Tang is like sort of undeniable. Uh, right. Apparently Rizzo was gonna produce the whole album I found out and then he heard it and was like, nope, you guys have done it. <laughs> like, just leave it. Um, but it's interesting. It's like Brockhampton couldn't exist because they would have been Wu-Tang. At the time there was like that band has 13 people in it five of which are content creators, right? Wu-Tang never would have thought about that, right? It, it just wasn't even a thing. It wasn't anything to think about. And so when the context changes, like when content is just part of uh, the way people see you now, then you start a band now on a Kanye West forum. And <laughs> um, right. it's, it's a little different. You're like, yeah, we should be able to shoot music videos at any time. We should have singers singing halfway through the song. Even, like Wu-Tang never would have done that. It just wasn't the thing to do. But now it's like music's so ADD. It's all over. Right, we're, we're moving yep. into post-genre, which is like amazing because right. I've always been decidedly post-genre because I love mm -hmm. it all. You know, I love the great singer-songwriters, Tom Petty, Neil Young kind of stuff, Rootsy. Mm -hmm. I love punk. That's where I started personally. I was playing punk. Um, I adore pop. 
I love R and B soul. I love rap, hip hop, trap, all of that stuff. So, you know, um, when you're eight, yeah, multitude of genres out there. I think you could integrate that into your work, and and we have done that just kind of unconsciously as as an industry because everything does kind of overlap and start to blend and, and gray. And now we're in this place where you don't have to just be rock band. You know, people are more willing to be culturally diverse. Right. Not just be like, this is the rock guy. This is the rap guy. This is the, the, the singer-songwriter girl. Like, you know what I mean? Now, now rock is like mostly girls. Like girls are carrying rock in a big way right now. So Kirk Cobain, you nailed it. Thank you for that. Nice. Open the door. He said that when I, I've looked up to him so much and when I was 14, 15 and starting my first bands and stuff and him saying stuff like the future of rock is women and like that just mm-hmm. gave me so much fire that carried me through so much. So. Right. I mean, speaking of the void, it's like he recognized the void at that. It's like, are all the women in rock? So him saying that was a recognition of deep listening, deep observation. I'll even abstract it one layer. It's deep observation. And... <laughs> It's observing what is happening around you and how you can make a mark. Where is that void? How do you fit? Um, okay. We've been on the personal roadblock topic for a bit, but there are other topics. I'm going to read them off to you. Um, I want to see what you think. So um, collaboration, decision-making, limits, like creative limits, um, play, and language. Mm. I, 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 I'm not trying to create a negative bent, but I really love your like limitations and cool. obstacles and stuff. So limitations, I actually love talking about limitations because I, I grew up with the, so many, you know. Amazing. Yeah. Let's, I, I actually won't bias you and tell you what I think about limitations yet. I want you to riff sure. on it. Okay. Well, I love them. I mean, obviously I don't always love them because when they limit your ability to eat or thrive or live or be healthy um you know that sucks I don't like those ones um but i love that when you have a kind of limitation you actually have a controlled environment mm. and so when you're in a controlled environment there are only you know there aren't the infinitely calculable options you know what I mean? It, it kind of closes things down and, and then it's up to you to find the most effective, creative, impactful way to work within the, you know, controlled, you know, area that you're, you're in. And that very much affects the uh, product that comes out of that in a way that it wouldn't, you know, like it might not even get finished, <laughs> right? If you have a limited ability to, play with something right so it kind of helps sometimes limitations help you really actually finish something (laughs) Mm. yeah not not just create something that's very unique to its parts but actually get it finished right and when you're working with people like let's say producing um like a whole record not just vocal production but an entire record Mm -hmm. are you consciously setting limits like how are you thinking about limits um, well, I always have to have my mind on budget, unfortunately. So that puts yeah. me limit, you know, and I've gotten so creative about how I can work with the budget. Yeah. You know, so that's great because that means that now people that don't have the access to that high fidelity sound or that, that like high level production, I'm able to get them way closer to it. 
you know, and that for me was really important because a lot of my bad experiences came from trying to get access to a space where you either had to have money or you had to be willing to like go through the whole, you know, rigmarole of, of the, the industry getting signed and right. or deal with the creepy older producers who were trying to get in bed with me. Yeah. Like I just, yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I think that budget is a good one. And also I like knowing really well what the artist's vision is mm. because that puts some caps on things that I might otherwise personally want to explore um but it gives me kind of their universe to play it instead of mine right and when when i talk to an artist about like what are your boundaries as far as how can how far can i push you with your songwriting Mm. you know how many changes can we make how far out of your typical sound are you willing to go um you know and when that's established you know that I can more comfortably work with that artist because they don't feel like they're being dragged so far out of their element that they're like shutting down and being bewildered. Right. So you're asking this up front, how far can I push? I try. I try. Yeah. yeah. I try to have that conversation. Sometimes it's just, I mean, I'm lucky in that I get so many people that just trust me. Yeah. And like, they're like, here, do something with this. And mm-hmm. I do. Um, yeah. And then it turns out good and we're all happy. Yeah, I feel like intuitively... When I work with someone, I could read them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because of that, like when it comes to creativity and musicians, that's one of the kind of people I can actually read. So, right. so I can really empathize and dig into that. And, and uh, usually my instincts are really good. So I follow those as much as I can. To unpack some of those instincts, um, what would you say? Like, so to me, instinct is like the brain just running a ton of operations really fast. What would you say some of those operations are when you're observing an artist trying to assess how far you can push someone? I mean, I'll definitely watch their body language. People say a lot with their eyeballs. Um, If they start looking away from you and looking down like they're going internal, you got to watch that. That's Mm -hmm. a cue that I look for. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I kind of just give little things out mm-hmm. and see their kind of response to it. If they seem to go inward, then I don't push. If it mm-hmm. draws them out, then I've, I, that's where I need to be going. If I see, if I see what I'm saying, suggesting or doing activates the artist, gets mm-hmm. them engaged, mm-hmm. gets them off their phone, gets them back in the session, gets them thinking about their lyrics and going, hold up, maybe I could have expressed this better if I arranged the words this way. Like, that's when I know I'm on the right path. Mm. Does it activate them? I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, what about creative limits during the process? So other than budget, that's sort of like a macro limit. What are some like macro limits that you uh, have set up, if you have any examples? Um, I love doing field recording, like just grabbing a track cassette recorder or even just a handheld recorder or a very basic computer, just straight in, one line straight in kind of situation. Um, And working with those old school analog style limitations, where you're limited to, you know, your outboard gear, there's no plugins, you don't have soft synths, you don't have, you know, drums to program, everything has to come from you. Mm-hmm. And, you're, and you're writing and you're visualizing. I love that because it, you know, if you listen to the best songs, they can all be stripped down to a vocal and an instrument. 
Um, even some of the ones that seem like they're just so produced and they wouldn't stand up without production, you could arrange it in a way that it becomes really effective. That's just about creative producing. You know, strong song is a strong song is a strong song. So if you strip it down to as few elements as you can get, the song is revealed. Yep. Is it actually strong or are you relying on all the ear candy and devices to make the song interesting while you're just kind of being there? Yeah, it's interesting that now the limitation is the self. Like, can you, like, can simplicity and the self. But um, if I relate this to design in that um, I have a friend who's working on a design portfolio and she's writing case studies about the work she did. So, like, she worked on a project, like, what was the beginning, middle, end? What are the results? What was the brief? And I was like, start with a text document, no formatting. So, like, you can't bold or underline. All you can do is write text in a line and indent it. And like, that's how you design anything. Even a website, an app, I've built apps just like text first. Because at the end of the day, like that is the most lo-fi you could go, right? But it's shed at the foundational level meets the needs, whether that be emotion, whether that be um, efficiency, whether that be... um, something in between you know hybrid of the two you know like Mm -hmm. yeah so i was like yeah start with a a text document because it's easy to critique that yeah it's not easy to critique like hundreds of layers and all this stuff i actually find with my own you know my own music which you know i'm not on a commercial journey on that journey Mm -hmm. that's my artist journey um but i it i stopped Hey, I stopped because five years of my life, I was just in the engineering trenches. And it's when you're working 20 hours or whatever, and you're like barely sleeping and you're giving everything to your job. Um, it's really hard to create, mm-hmm. uh, you know? And so I was in a very absorptive period. I like to think of it as sponge. You know, you have your periods where you're like soaking everything up, periods where you're wringing everything out. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm just starting to get to the point where I'm like, I'm too juicy. So it's time to rinse it. But uh, I really like, I find that for me, when I am presented, when I sit down in my studio and I'm like, wow, I have everything I ever dreamed of having. I have Pro Tools in front of me. I have all of the gear that I need uh, to make whatever kind of record I want. Mm-hmm. I have all the resources in, within my community to take it however far I want to. Yeah, I have the ability to earn money now in a way that's way more tangible so I can actually kind of budget for this kind of stuff and I'm not living on a waitress's salary. Right. You know? Um, all of that stuff actually presents me with complete overwhelm and shuts me down. Mm-hmm. And then when I'm just sitting on the bed with my phone and my busted old guitar, mm-hmm. I, I, that's when I, I become active. Yeah. Is I have these very limit, limited things and then I have to look at the song. I can't be like, oh, this drum beat. Yeah, I'm feeling the grooves. Let me write to it. Or like, oh, this chord progression. Like, or like, oh, this the synth, I'm gonna build a track a track and then I'm gonna sing over it. Like, nah. Mm. Not for me. Right. I I right. do that when I'm when I'm writing with someone, with I'm right if I'm writing with a top lighter or something like that, then that's fine. But for myself, that does not work. I gotta just get on a piano or a guitar and do it properly. Mm. And it speaks to kind of what you're, uh, to use a very businessy word, what you're optimized for, right? It's like, for you, you're like, I'm not optimizing for a billion plays on Spotify. Like, that's not my goal. My goal is self-personal fulfillment. 
um, and making something that I'm happy with. And so then it's interesting how limitations could actually change just based on what you're optimizing for. Yeah. But even, even like you could use the same limitations for different things, you know, not to say that all limitations for, you know, so you could get an artist who's like, um, using all these synths and software and be like, here's a guitar, you know how to play it. Like, let's try to do something on guitar. That's another way. In a way, it might be optimizing for more divergent thinking or something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, you just, you help people revel when you pull a lot of what's familiar to them. Yeah. Because even if they shrink back to wherever they were, there's going to always be now that little pocket of, you know, potential expansion. Mm. Yeah. Uh, this word familiar um, my friend Ray and I were speaking about this. Uh, she's an artist, um, and she works with a very close friend of mine, um, on a project. And, um, we were talking about this idea of familiarity, um, and how that, uh, is a blessing and a curse sometimes, right? In process, in, in environments that you set up for yourself, like how the familiar can creep in, um, this wasn't a topic, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on familiarity in the creative process. Like everything, I just don't believe in absolutes. Right. <laughs> you know, like, sure, I believe that like black is black, white is white, you know, rock is rock, etc. But mm-hmm. uh, I, I really like to think of things as way more movable than being stuck to, you know, I think familiarity again is a reference. Mm. What's familiar to you should be like, oh, okay, this is what I know. So I have an anchor. Mm-hmm. I have a foot. I have a foot on a floor, and I'm not gonna just totally, uh, you know, succumb to, like, the pull of the universe. You know, mm. there's a little gravity in having right. familiarity. Yeah, it prevents that chaos from creeping in. Yeah, well, just again, it helps you orient yourself to everything. Mm. Familiarity. Mm. Yeah. And again, should only ever be a reference because what's familiar to you might not be the realest thing in the world. So you got to be careful about all right. that. Too. Right. Exactly. And that's the duality of it. Yeah. On, um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you're following the status page, but I've been doing these posts. They're yellow posts and they have this purple line. They're all different spectrums that I'm looking at. So, like, um, to speak to that duality, because the logo itself is duality. And so I wanted to have some concepts themed around duality in the creative process. Um, that's so funny because all of my work is, is centered in like my creative work is so obsessed with paradox of duality and all of my spiritual practice is centered in all of that. So I love, I think that's why I just like, we were drawn to each other. Yeah. That, you know, same kind of almost like you could explore any territory intellectually with somebody because you're just not locked into you understand the duality of everything so you could be just really flexible and creative with how you think yes that how you listen i mean it's called exploring creativity that's very accurate that's a very (laughs) um that's a great point because i think that is really useful in relating to the other selves in the world Mm -hmm. Uh, i like this term other selves because we think about ourselves all the time but then it's like, well, there's other selves out there, like that feel that they're a self, you know? Yeah. And yeah, it's that. very hard to relate when it's like, um, I'm just looking at the, I'll actually, I'll turn my camera around. Um, so these posts right here are the one. Right. 
Uh, um, designing the line to represent and illustrate the concept. Um, I love that. Failure and success. Work to live. I thought it was following status. I'm sorry. I'll refollow. Push and pull. Oh, wow. Stability and novelty. Novelty. Wow. So the other day I posted a story that I just had people um, rank on the on these spectrums where they felt like they fell for that reason to kind of discover in themselves um, where they sit. You know, like where do you feel like you sit on this rigidity to flexibility spectrum? You're not rigid or flexible. You're somewhere lines, and so in a way, it's easier to relate to someone who says, "I'm usually flexible about these things, but I'm very rigid about this." Then being like, hey, I'm a rigid person. Um, and I think getting to that territory and having that label, or when people say I'm an introvert, I'm like, but you're outside right now. And we're talking like, so it's like, what does that really mean? Is it, is it that useful? Um, and maybe that's a good transition into language because you mentioned labels before, um, how they're only references and uh, it helps you frame and it helps you relate, but there are no absolutes. Um, love to hear your thoughts on language as it relates to interacting with other selves. Uh, it sort of, uh, as this book states, um, it is the bridge to other selves, uh, which I love. I think that's beautiful and poetic. And so, yeah. It, um, yeah, how is language working in your, in your process? I, oh my goodness. Language is so important to me. Um, I was not highly verbal in my first couple of years. Uh, which is very common for those of us who are a little bit different. But when I began to speak, I began to speak in full sentences and mm. singing and stuff like that. Uh, because I just, I, I understood very early that language was specific. <laughs> and uh, I feel like I've always known that. And I've always understood that you can use language as a tool to, because I understood music first. Music was my first language. Mm. And music can take a concept, a feeling, a something, and communicate that to you by a process of delivery, right? Mm. So that was my introduction to the concept of language was through music. Mm. Okay. And so understanding it on that level and that kind of being my foundational, I became aware that it's very specific what kind of emotion you can evoke through language and what kind of interaction you could cultivate through language and, and how deep is an understanding from one person to another. Um, and because I, I feel like it's very hard to explain who I am because there's so much complexity to that with the way my brain works with also just me as a person and, you know, every individual has their own stuff. And I, I can explain who I am. It's like, <laughs> I've been well, trying you know, trying to, trying to, trying to communicate how you feel and, and what your ideals are and what your opinions are and mm -hmm. that kind of self-expression. The assertion. Yeah. Yeah. The assertion. Um, so that kind of stuff, you know, when I realized that language was how we did that, I took mm -hmm. it very seriously. I went to bought the red Webster's unabridged dictionary oh, oh. and actually got through cover to cover no over way. a period of 10 years. Yeah. No way. Yeah, so I so became. I bought, I, bought, I bought John a dictionary for that reason. Like I was like, "You're the only person I know that would read a dictionary end to end," because um, he's just like that kind of mind. And so for his birthday, I got him um, a rose 
like a rose colored dictionary. Um, That's a and, great gift. Yeah, it's words, man. They they really <laughs> so powerful and also can be used so ineffectively and so wrongly, right? Mm-hmm. Which is where that specificity comes in, right? Mm-hmm. You're just really, really specific. And one thing about English, and you could love it or hate it, English, uh, the way that it's been hybridized and, and like all this other kinds of like etymologies of stuff have kind of yeah. merged into this one language. Um, you have so many ways of saying stuff and it's very, very, very specific. And it's not as metaphorical as like, say, Portuguese or, mm-hmm. you know, you have like the Romance languages, like like French and stuff where you're mm-hmm. very... You understand, but it's on an intuitive level because you understand how those words work together. Whereas you can be so descriptive and specific with English, you know, like there are like 20 different words for what could be seen as the same word, but there are little tiny, uh, you know, implications attached to each word. Yes. Context, right? So that's just, I find that so fascinating. Fascinating, mm-hmm. you know. So I like I love language, and I hope to be a really effective communicator in all aspects of my life. So I consider language extremely important. I can. I was working on that. I can verify that you are. A, <laughs> a um, I I often think about the German language for uh, as being the complete antithesis to the English language. Which um, I worked with a lot of people in Germany. I've been out there and. Um, uh, probably two months of my life in total and love Berlin, by the way, one of my favorite places. Um, but anytime I was communicating with anyone that lives there, they all speak English, uh, pretty well, actually. Um, they were trying to communicate certain things and what would take, what would be one word in German would be like a whole paragraph in English to really explain these really core human concepts and it's so interesting how it shapes cultural experience by the words that are being used that was the first real time where i noticed the effect that it has where i could say this long german word to you which is really a hybridized like bunch of words but it's a word that is recognized and accepted and you're like oh yeah that is a thing like the feeling of the sun reflecting when you're sitting on a balcony like i don't know if that's real but like that is a thing yeah. and that's a whole vibe but in america we'd be like yeah that's a vibe man like you know what I mean? and it's like right. what does that mean like i don't right so you're you know i think that's interesting because it also can be very like wide open and open to interpretation you mm-hmm. can use words in a way that are more mysterious like you can use it in any direction language mm-hmm. that you you want you know and i love i have loved german for that reason too that you know like having those really descriptive terms of like states of being that mm. we don't have as much here. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like overcomplicating to the things to the point. That's what we do. I think in America too, it's like overcomplicating things to the point where it, it becomes even kind of way less understandable than it should be. Yeah. I think it's like, yeah, yeah. It's like sort of, I don't want to say abstracting, but sort of, I can think by definition, it is abstracting things. <laughs> Like, and then like making phrases for all these little nuances, I guess, and the, the opposite would be like, these nuances are grouped into terms. 
either way. Um, well, the great thing about English is we'll, we'll adopt some of them. You know what I mean? And then yeah. we'll let them be terms in English, even though they're German. Yeah. But I like this idea of it, it uh, having an affect on the state of being. Um, that language can absolutely do that. Um, do you find, so working, so uh, when I started on the podcast, I'll kind of give you some context where this is coming from. I started on the podcast. I'm sort of like Silicon Valley startups, working in New York City, working in California, my whole life, uh, pretty much doing that. Uh, absorbed tons of different language about designing products and graphic design and technology and business, right? I have all these words in my head. I go on the podcast with everyone and after like a month of it, four episodes, I'm like, damn, like I am, my dictionary, not size-wise, but like the contents of it feel so different. And initially the imposter syndrome totally kicked in and I was like so scared to like do that. Now I'm like, this is actually the value. But regardless, do you, do you have you experienced that? Like, is the, do you think that's related to imposter syndrome as well? Have you figured out how to navigate language and um I feel like I get better and better at it and I feel like I, the the biggest improvement for me was just willing to be fallible in conversation mm. not be defensive uh always be willing to extend myself um and, and and try to meet people within their conceptual universes respectively um my husband has been so great for that because we're so alike in in our values and so alike in so many aspects of our lives but in our communication we're so incredibly different mm-hmm. um even though we always arrive at the same thing we just right. come at it from completely different angles mm-hmm. and along the way most of the time it's explaining the angles to each other yeah. this like kind of trajectory trying mm-hmm. to get each other you know like so we go back <laughs> it's like docking in this yeah. stage of that is yeah. yeah. That's a great metaphor. I will say, I have to compliment your use of metaphors. You use them very often, but they're always effective. Something I remember our very first conversation was you saying um, about emotions, like uh, the state of the room, feelings being, uh, I believe, encoded in the document. Um, And I was like, fuck, that's, I never... Since then, I have never opened my design tool and not thought about that. Um, wow. So wow. I think that was, that was useful. And it was a great metaphor. I think of this manila envelope every time when you said document, that's what I imagine. Like visualize, <laughs> like the ones with like the, the rope that you like. Yeah. yeah. You know, around. Or like the two where you do the little infinity spoon. That's, ex- that's the one. Yeah. I'm going to pull up a photo. Just so if anyone doesn't know or just for nostalgic reasons. Oh, I haven't uh, seen it in a while. No. Yeah, it's been a minute. It's like the days of career stuff. Oh, memories, yes. Where they are. Those. So think about all the work you're doing is being put into this little folder and then tied up with the rope. That doesn't help you. I got nothing else for you. <laughs> no. Uh, hmm. Okay. We covered a lot of ground. Um, Great. Okay. I have two more categories, play and feedback. Nice. Good choices. Maybe we end up play. That seems positive. 
like that. And don't play. So feedback. I like it when it's guitar stuff. <laughs> That's it. Uh, no, I love I love feedback, but feedback is still hard for me. I I again I you know I like I said earlier I'm still trying to disarm being really defensive because when you spend your life masking, you're also protecting what you don't know. So, uh, yeah, it can be. It, it, you, you develop kind of the defensiveness to criticism or to uh, stuff that feels like you're not being understood. So sometimes feedback in, in the form of criticism feels like not being understood, which is a big trigger for me. So mm-hmm. I work on that one. Uh, you know, and, and of course, in my profession, I have to just let the ego go. So I don't even have an opinion when I'm in that mode. Right. Oh, okay. So like, so, I so try... Huh? Sorry, go ahead. I I try to just be flowing. Mm-hmm. And if, if I am noticing that my suggestion is blocking the flow, mm-hmm. I see the artist shutting down, you know, or vice versa. If if I feel I'm shutting down when an artist is flowing at me, like I try to shift, get that door down and get the flow going again. Mm. So Seeing how feedback's affecting you or the room. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When, when, when feedback is, you know, presented, I guess is, is a good way to say it. When feedback is presented, you know, it's a good idea to look at how you're responding before you even respond. That mm. makes sense. Yes. Look at the note, better word. Look at how you're receiving before mm. you respond. Yes. Um, 100%. Um, Next step would be how you respond. Um, Productively, hopefully. What does that look like to you? The train stays on the tracks. The session keeps going. Or if it needs to stop and we Mm -hmm. need to, we need to like reorganize and get reconnected or shift trajectories because we're actually barreling down this road to nowhere. Nobody wants to be the one to say it or, mm-hmm. you know, or, yeah. When you're getting a lot of just personal discernment, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the ability to read the room, it's kind of a summary of a lot of what we talked about. It's like knowing people's limits, knowing your personal roadblocks, how you're going to receive it. Um, then knowing um, how to assess the context and, and, and use the right language is sort of compiling all those to then give feedback in a way. It's that assertion thing and, and conflict thing. Um, have, where's the dysfunction been in giving feedback in the past or now even? Giving it? Or... Uh, Let's say giving it. We'll start there. Yeah, that's it's, they're specific. So yeah, yeah, for sure. Let's start addressing that. Okay, giving feedback. I am. There are some producers out there who will absolutely just beat a performance out of an artist, mm-hmm. and I'm not that person. Yeah. For me, it should be like laying out Reese's pieces and uh, have an eat and uh, grab them and come down and 
you know, like I always want my artists to feel that they are uh, allowed to be themselves fully, 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 100%, just absolutely naked in their soul um, and be heard. (laughs) You know what I mean? Because an artist, the artist isn't the listener. The artist is the one to be heard. Right. Right. I'm the producer, but I'm not the one to be heard. I'm the one to make it hearable Mm. and translate it through my process to be the most effectively effective delivery package, I guess, (laughs) of that intention by the artist. So Mm. I try I try to keep my feedback focused on what's pushing things uh, forward to being finished. Also dovetailing with the artist being happy, feeling heard, feeling like their song or the song that was written for them is being captured in a way that is worth remembering and worth putting out. Mm. I always use the word legacy, you know, because these documents are our legacies. Right. It's not about the fidelity, but because if you listen to like Dark Was the Night, Cold Was the Ground by Blind Willie Johnson, it's a mess so glorious and that is the record that is that made me want to be a recordist at all because the pure emotion despite the crackling and despite the weird frequency spectrum and all of the things you know involved in that recording all of that contributes to the authenticity of the document and right. you know what i mean becomes part of its like universe so mm. i you know i really want to make sure that that's where I aim every time in mm. production. These documents are our legacy. Yeah, is that I want it to be, that's the version, you know? Yeah, yeah. The version of the song that said exactly what the song meant to say. And that should be the recorded version. And then the fun thing is live, you could make as many different arrangements and expressions as you want to, but to have that definitive version of a song, that legacy version of a song, as a producer, that's always my goal. Unless we're doing like a remix and sometimes my remixes become more definitive than the originals, you know, like you, you just never really know. But that's always my goal is to create a definitive legacy document, not just filler and content. Glad you're not out there. Filler. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you for that. Um, There's enough. There's enough. One says hello. Hi, so you're talking about remixing something I know very little about. Um, but to me, it feels like the thing I know about it is the other day I heard a song by Justin Bieber on his new record called Too Much, which is a beautiful song. And it's just a piano song. Have you heard it? Yeah. And I was like, I want to hear this, but like with the drums, and like, so I like Googled or YouTube it, and like a few people have remixes. That's, that's my extent of knowledge about remixes, just for context. Me YouTubing a Justin Bieber song with the word at the end. So, but it but feels like- I mean, Back in the day, like in the nineties and the eighties and nineties is when remixes became a big thing, right? Mm. Becoming like, we even have a Grammy category for right now, remixer, mm. um, we've had it for a while. So it's when you, when perhaps the quote unquote definitive version of the song has already been released it's an adaptation of that work right Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's just a different 
flavor. It's a different outfit for that yeah. dog. Nice. Um, and and there there I like this is why I love Tori Abe so much. Is not only does she do what she does, she would just give the stems to the various people in her you know orbit that did that kind of stuff and have these disco you know gay club remixes and these dark you know cinematic like movie style remixes and 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 so you got to and the great thing about that is the remix process really reveals the song right right because if you take it out of that framework and it still holds in a totally new framework that's a good song right so remixing can be great and actually versions of songs that you know to be the definitive version are actually remixes the original the original ones probably just didn't make the cut so right you're a remixer and recreate mm-hmm. interesting yeah. well i felt like that might relate to the word play and since that's our last topic i figured let me dovetail into that so let's talk about play oh it's my favorite oh. it's my favorite it's I, the, if I have one word that sums up the philosophy of my life is play, you know, preferably record and play. <laughs> huh? Right. Eva, what's up? Yeah. Play is my favorite. Play is just because play is the, is the manifestation and create creation ground, right? Mm-hmm. That's the realm where all of the wonderful and terrible things that we manifest as human beings are brought into the field, you know, where we make them tangible and real from the ideas in our brain to the world that we co-create and participate in together. So for me, play is just the, because it's fun, you know what I mean? It's not work. Hold on. That that was a bar right there. That was (laughs) good. I got to go back to this and write that down. Exactly. That was what did I say? Okay. Everything you just said. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very enthusiastic. Play is my favorite state. If, you, if you're hanging around me and I'm an absolute goofball and really enthusiastic and bouncing off the walls, and that is my natural state. I am a forever mm. child. I always maintain my sense of wonderment, curiosity, um, desire to, to connect and understand and... Um, and play with, you know, I like people. I, I, they frighten me sometimes, but I like people <laughs> as a concept and I want to play with them. That's what I came to earth to do. Otherwise I'd be the little princess on my little planet with my little volcano and wham, 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 all by myself. You know, have or a, maybe I love that. Well, there would be a volcano on the planet. Sure. Fair. It's on the Okay. It's a volcano. Oh, okay. A little one. To create like little islands and stuff. Yeah, so you get Earth. Right, I like it. Um, how how do you like? Are you? Seems weird to talk about consciously inserting play, but how are you like allowing for it to enter into your process when you're working? I try to create a culture from the start of play. I try to find people's inner child. I try to. Mm-hmm. Find the things that make them laugh, smile, giggle, relax, those shoulders go down. Um, their sense of humor comes out, uh, whether it be like like really cute and, and dad jokey or like really dark and sarcastic. I mean, I love it all. As long as the humor part is engaged, right? I think that's where play really can become active and thrive is, is when you're in good humor and good faith. 
Mm. Yes. Good faith. Oh, man, don't get me started on that one. I just wrote a song called Bad Faith. That's right. Yeah, about everything, right? (laughs) Um, It's interesting you say that because when the Convos team went on our retreat, we came up with three terms that we want to help kind of be the tenants to the brand and what we're creating. And one of them was good faith. Um, Good. (laughs) Good. So yeah, riff on that. Feel free. Oh man, good faith. Um, The only way that we can create most productively manifest together most cooperatively is good faith. The destruction of humanity is in bad faith. And the ways systematically that we install bad faith in society by creating these divisions and hyper-reactionary, inflammatory things and all the weird social issues into that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we stir up bad faith. Bad faith makes you close. Bad faith makes you suspicious of others. Bad mm-hmm. faith makes you doubt. Um, fear um it just bad faith is the engagement of destructive force basically to me mm. it's the same as what maybe people would call the devil i call mm. that faith it's evil it's you know and i don't look at evil as like oh it's the worst thing in the world it's like no evil is the fucking shade of the paradox right you know what i mean yeah. you have to understand how to orient yourself in opposition of evil Right. That's where it is. You know, mm. like like it you don't eradicate it, it can't be eradicated. No energy can be eradicated. Right. You just have to position yourself. Like phase cancellation. You know what mm. I mean? You gotta put yourself in that mode where you are canceling out that bad wave. Mm-hmm. And then you clear the field for something to, you know, go through or whatever. Mm. Like, that's not totally how phase works. So don't get mad at me, but you're still watching. Yeah. <laughs> And I was talking about imposter syndrome. <laughs> um, I think we about covered, I mean, we covered how many pages we got? One, two, three, three and a half. Well, I have to say, I just love having conversations with you. So I hope you will come back and come out to the desert and we could go oh. to do this. I don't mind doing it on the IG either if people like watching it. Yeah, I mean... People have stuck around this whole time. So it seems like they they like it. I mean, I, I I am just so grateful for these opportunities because I think inside of all of us, we're so yearning to have these conversations where we can be transparent and vulnerable and real with each other and really have the chance to see each other. Because I yeah. think we've been taught with the whole cultivation of image and everything, we've been taught that if we present to each other in a way that's anything but this like carefully curated way that we can't love and accept and 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 appreciate the complexities and the differences and mm-hmm. and and learn to see beauty in the things that strike us as not at first, perhaps because of the way we're conditioned. You know, I just think it's the the concept of being vulnerable, expressing your worldview, but doing it in these ways where you're exploring it together instead of insisting on it at each other. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just really so inspiring for me like this is, this is the perfect day for us to have had this conversation because i'm gonna go into my session from here just like buzzing and happy so thank you very much for this ah well it means so much to me that you would join that you would set an alarm for this uh, 
I'm no. sorry it was off. I'm sorry. No, it was off, but you're here. And that's really all that matters. You, your missions okay. are meaningful and thoughtful um, and appreciated by me, but also by everyone that's listening. I'm I had, uh, as Eva just said, you are the realist. I really, really appreciate you. Thank uh, you, Michael. Such a pleasure to talk to you. And thank you yeah. everyone for sticking around and listening to us ramble. Y'all are just wonderful. I love this community. Like I'm an enthusiast, so just deal with my intensity. I love everyone in our community so incredibly much. I can't wait to see all y'all. Well, I think everyone feels that. I know I do. So thank you so much. Have a great day. Have a great session. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.